Hello, I'm Maha Khan Phillips, editor of Professional Investor at CFA UK. Welcome to the latest episode of the CFA UK In Conversation podcast. This is a show for investment professionals focusing on a whole manner of topics and interesting insights that are affecting the profession today. In this episode, I am delighted to welcome Anika Gupta, CFA. Anika is Director of Macroeconomic Research at Wisdom Tree. She has worked as a research analyst across a wide range of asset classes for the last 17 years, and with that lens, she's been a keen observer on how geopolitics has affected the investment landscape. Today, we're going to talk about exactly that, how political risk factors play into investing and whether the industry is doing enough to take political risk into account. Welcome, Anika. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Maha. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast and, uh, you know, share our views at Wisdom Tree on how we're viewing uh, geopolitical risks. Um, so I'm, I'm delighted to be here. That's great. Thank you. And can I start by asking you about geopolitical risk in the context of the investment landscape? How much of an issue is geopolitical risk right now? Obviously, we're seeing all these key political events happening around us. Absolutely. Um, you know, you've, you touched upon this topic at a, at a crucial point. We at Wisdom Tree believe geopolitical risks are front and center uh, of the investment world at this point in time. You know, we're already in the midst of a war in Europe uh, owing to the brutal war uh, in Ukraine that has been led by Russia. And, and the reality of the matter is, while the war is centered in Ukraine, we're all paying a price for it um, across the world. Um, you know, people across the globe are being faced with rising energy bills, higher food costs, and it has been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. We've had war-related disruptions that have led to protectionism. We've seen, uh, you know, to cite a few examples, we've seen India, um, which is the third largest wheat producer, uh, you know, announce it would restrict wheat exports earlier in the year to manage its own domestic supply of grains. We've, um, you know, we've seen Indonesia, which is a leading supplier of palm oil, strike a ban on hundreds of exports of its palm oil. And that's also led to very sharp tightness in the market. As a consequence, we've seen prices rally in the aftermath of that. So we've seen a tighter oil seeds market, which has been driven by, you know, the rise of protectionism. We've also seen tightness in the greens market, which has been led, led by this rising protectionism and the squeeze on exports from Russia and Ukraine that has led to higher grain prices. Over and above that, we've seen fertilizer prices that have also shot through the roof because Russia and Ukraine account for such a large uh, portion of exports that's led to containment of production and containment of supply and owing to which we're likely to see agricultural commodity prices trade higher in the long run as we're seeing more farmers cut back on usage of these fertilizers because they've become just too expensive. The other geopolitical risk that, that you know, is brewing uh, around in the horizon has been the friction between the US and China owing to the recent visit by Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, yeah, in, that, that was in, an interesting one. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, that's it's it's the first visit uh, by a well-known, uh, you know, person in the U.S. to Taiwan, and it's really sparked a lot of uh, discontent from China. We've seen a number of military drills. We've seen a lot of economic retaliation from Beijing against Taiwan, and that's caused a lot of rift between the two economies. So, Anika, what you just said is really interesting on on so many levels because this is such a kind of multifactorial issue. But I, I think what's interesting from from for me is that. 
there's been political risks or political events or wars that have been quite localized, where the investment industry has been able to sort of say, well, that's happening somewhere else. Um, and this is not our problem. This is not the case now. When you look at something on, on such a large scale as Russia, Ukraine, or tension between the US and China, these are not localized issues. But has the investment industry done a good job with local or, or global? Um, when you look at the stage, has the investment industry done a good job of taking political risk into account? That's a great question, Maha. And, uh, you know, it's something we are continuously tracking here. Um, you know, if we if we look at, you know, in the immediate aftermath of what has happened between, um, you know, the current war that is ongoing and the likelihood of a war brewing between uh, U.S. and China, we, we believe investors are underpricing geopolitical risks at this point in time. Um, you know, if you take an example of uh, the most well-known safe haven asset, I would point you in the direction to gold. And you look at, um, you know, how gold has performed in this current climate. The performance has been quite weak. Um, you know, just to just to highlight a few trends within the ETF industry, we've seen gold ETFs register outflows of 81 uh, tons, uh, you know, amounting to about $4.5 billion. Um, it's in July, and this was the third consecutive month of outflows um, in July, and it's, to be, it's been the worst since March of 2021. Um, and, you know, the, the key reason has been we've had a, um, a very strong U.S. dollar uh, way on performance. We've also had, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Fed resonating a very hawkish message. Um, uh, and, and obviously, the U.S. being one of the largest uh, central banks, the Federal Reserve is sending a much more hawkish message, which is sending the uh, you know, echoing uh, the fact that interest rates are going to go higher for longer and gold being a non-interest bearing asset is getting penalized um, as a consequence. But, you know, it's it's important that the markets, that, that investors should should not forget that the markets are, are just obsessed with the Fed at this point in time. And should these geopolitical risks that are brewing in the horizon actually uh, transpire or actually escalate, um, you know, that is going to have serious ramifications. And we will see gold as it often, as it historically has proven uh, to be a, a very strong performer in in times of uncertainty and in times of heightened geopolitical risk, uh, perform very well. Investors will be caught off guard. So I think it's worth uh, investors actually, uh, you know, allocating uh, to this asset, uh, you know, prior to the 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 possibility of this risk escalating uh, beyond control. So investors should be finding defensive assets, or that, uh, yeah, absolutely. And beyond that, just day to day, even if there was no war going on between Russia and Ukraine right now, are there sort of political risk frameworks that should be incorporated into investment decision making, or how day to day should investors be thinking about sort of the analysis of political events? Or should they be thinking about them? Absolutely. I mean, um, so it, the way I would address that is typically, you know, th I mean, this this brings about it a good point to bring about the distinction between um, an international portfolio versus a domestic portfolio. So in a typical international portfolio, um, you are privy to these risks 
um, that that would be dominated by decisions made by governments. So political risk would be associated with changes that occur with the country's policies, um, its business laws, investment regulations, similar to what we're seeing take place right now. Um, and, you know, we're seeing strong investment decisions taking place. We're seeing strong country policies being made, especially in, in the U.S. Now, obviously, in a domestic portfolio, that would have less implications as compared to an international portfolio. So it matters even more when your portfolio has that international exposure and a bias. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the key thing here is uh, there's obviously a higher level of risk in international investing versus just restricting your portfolio to domestic investing. Um, and I think investors should maintain a more diversified portfolio in order to avoid any specific political risk um, that could significantly impact their own portfolio. And so I believe diversification should include hedging that risk out. So as an example, say an investor, uh, you know, senses that there could be problems arising in Brazil um, owing to the upcoming elections, they might decide uh, to buy put options on uh, the iShares MSCI Brazil uh, index ETF, you know. So that put option, if it's placed at the right value, could significantly, um, you know, uh, reduce your losses if the index were actually to fall or create gains elsewhere in your portfolio. So hence, you've kind of offset the losses that you would have originally have suffered, um, to, you know, to a larger extent. So I think that's an important point that investors should take into account. A is hedging your risks, especially when you have an international portfolio. You are exposed um, you know, to the country's policies, their business laws, their investment regulations. And the second factor is you know, having an allocation to uh, well-known safe haven assets. So I would say I would I would define those as in the currency world to be the Swiss franc, um, the Japanese yen. Uh, you know, in the commodity world to precious metals such as gold, silver, more industrialized precious metals such as platinum, palladium, uh, and in the, in, um, uh, you know, in the equity world to more uh, quality, uh, to the quality factor, which essentially looks at stocks that have high return on equity, high return on assets, and lower debt levels. So I think that's the focus that investors should have at this point in time. So political risk should be a factor like every other risk. Absolutely. And in fact, more so at this at this point in time and going forward, you know, um, we've enjoyed a good decade of uh, lower political risk. In fact, I would say that, um, you know, these frictions that are emanating in uh, in Russia, where Russia is is fighting Western countries at the same time, we've got China um you know trying to uh, dominate in the indo-pacific region and uh, you know when we had um donald trump uh, in power he successfully pursued a policy of divide and rule and he managed to keep china and russia away from forming an alliance somehow i mean I, i'm not sure if it's biden wanting to do this but somehow under the biden administration it appears as if they're impatient to see America's most um, powerful adversaries getting even closer. Um, you know, there was even an article entitled, Thank You, Pelosi, 
following uh, her visit to Taiwan, where ra- one Russian commentator said, um, now nothing's going to actually prevent Moscow and Beijing from uh, taking a, a back-to-back stance that's going to that's gonna, you know, strengthen their ties even further. Um, and, and the reason for that is in battle, you need to help each other because the stronger your comrade in arms is, the closer your common victory is. And, uh, and you, the closer your common victory is to whom, in this case, it is to the USA. And, um, you know, the that is... The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly. Exactly. You've put it so well, Maha. Um, I mean, I thought that was an interesting, actually, decision to for the U.S. to reach out and Pelosi to go to Taiwan. But now, what are what is the landscape we're looking at? So we you've mentioned Russia, Ukraine, obviously China is a concern. Those relations with the U.S. is a concern. Um, are there other political risks that should be factored in? And also closer to home, we've got you know what's happening in the U.K. For example, this is not happening on a global stage, but for people who live here, that's a, a relevant um, issue as well. Absolutely. Um, I think for now, um, I would definitely say, yes, the, the the UK elections are going to be extremely important. And it's coming at a time when, you know, the economy is really struggling. So you're having a change of power when the economy is struggling. The Bank of England governor has already well telegraphed that we are heading in for a recession next year. And that recession is going to last for five quarters. So no central bank so far has put out so succinctly the fact that the economy is actually in a recession. That's quite an alarming. And at the same time, the Bank of England is faced with this difficult path that it needs to navigate where it's got extremely high inflation. Andrew Bailey has said that inflation is likely to peak at 13%. The most recent data print we got just this week was at 10%. So we're already on that path. And at the same time, we've got GDP contracting. So it's like, which battle do I fight first? Do I take on the inflation battle or do I take on the growth battle? Um, and it, it's a really tough one because here, the the reason for this high inflation is due to imported reasons. Um, it's it, you know Most of our inflation is imported and it's because of a lot higher energy prices. So it's a very difficult path to navigate. And at the same time, you've got policies that are coming into, you know, based on whoever would win the elections, the policies are tilted to either, you know, completely cutting taxes, um, which would again be very inflationary. Um, so it, it's 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 going to be a very tough one to navigate. But I would say my, you know, the, the, the key geopolitical risks we would highlight as being the most important globally uh, would be the, you know, the way... Um, the U.S. navigates uh, its relation with Taiwan and how China is going to um, uh, retaliate uh, from this point on. Because the path that we're seeing going forward is the U.S. is only looking to strengthen ties with Taiwan and the China and China is deeply against that happening. And it's interesting. I was talking to somebody the other day um, about gas bills and heating bills, and, and they were saying um I just can't believe that something happening over there can have such an impact on me over here. And it, it struck me that maybe we don't understand. We live in a global world, but maybe as a as a general rule, there's a lack of understanding about um, these ramifications. Some of them are very big, like, for example, soaring energy prices, we can understand. Um, but there are long-term ramifications of all kinds of uh, political risks. And 
um, in your mind, if we were talking about this in a few years' time, are there sort of things that we haven't thought about or that, that are not in the news today, but that actually will have an impact? Absolutely. Um, you're right. I think none of us really understand supply chains until we had the COVID pandemic. So, you know, we think ham comes out of the fridge. We think we don't understand that ham comes out from pork. Pork comes from a supply chain that could be, it could be in a UK farm. It could be coming all the way from a European farm. That farmer has to cultivate his land. Um, you know, the crops need to get certain amount of rainfall in a year. The pigs need to be fed a certain feedstock. If that feedstock is in short supply, it impacts the farmer. I think we're all starting to grapple with what supply chains really look like. And in that respect, I think what's really interesting is supply chains are coming under pressure. So I think in this pre-war economy, um, you know, we we saw uh, uh, savings, investor savings uh, hit an all-time high. It, it, I mean, it hit an all-time high to a point where investors didn't even know where to put their cash in. You know, they were just sitting at home in their pajamas. They had nothing to do. They had nowhere to go. Um, and now uh, they, they want to go, they, you know, they want to go explore the world, but prices are exorbitantly high. I think now the other, the, the other consequence in this post-war world is that those excess savings of, uh, you know, of, of an investor are, are now likely to be reallocated to new government policies, which are now uh, increasing uh, global defense spending. So every country is looking more inward and they're trying to protect themselves against, uh, you know, rising geopolitical risks, rising uh, national security threats. Um, and in order to do that, they're raising their defense bills. The other fact that, you know, we've we've suddenly started to investigate is globalization. I think globalization uh, was faring very well. It also helped us think less about supply chains. We just clicked our finger and we got what we want. Today, we need to think twice whether, you know, every every part of that supply chain is still intact. And owing to that, um, you know, I think in this post-war global economy, we are going to see supply chains um, hampered and we are going to see globalization, the rate of growth, the rate of growth of globalization take a back step. Um, and the other key thing is Europe and especially, you know, a case in point, Germany, which built its entire business model on cheap Russian, um, uh, you know, energy sources is now having to remodel that entire, uh, you know, that entire map uh, because, uh, you know, Germany can never find itself as vulnerable to uh, its supply of energy from one single source, that is Russia. It knows it's, you know, it's messed up. It should never have done that. In fact, back in 2018, it was Donald Trump that actually uh, warned uh, the the German ministers that they have too much of their uh, dependence of energy supplies on just one nation. I still have that televised recording and I still recall the German ministers laughing on his comment because everyone, you know, just just didn't take Trump seriously. But he actually made one of the most crucial statements, um, you know, four years back. And today, I, I don't think we're still laughing. I think we're all in a very, very difficult situation, um, you know, really wondering how the winter is going to shape out for uh, Europe. And so 
um yeah i think the post world economy is going to look very different which is which again brings me back to why uh the us is using this particular point in this this opportunity to uh deepen its ties with taiwan because it doesn't want to find itself in the same position as europe it doesn't want to be as vulnerable to energy supply um as as europe is to russia um and it doesn't want to find itself in that same position and as vulnerable to asia owing to de- its dependence on chip supply from asia and if beijing would have launched the attack first on taiwan um you know that would have just put the world in disarray because the rest of the world's chip supply would have just been cut off similar to what we saw during the covid pandemic i mean uh, you know the order supply just got completely distorted because there were no chips coming out of out of taiwan um which controls nearly more than 60% of the market and i think you know the us is trying to make that it make that initiative first it's trying to deepen ties you know it's it's completely revamping its policy with with uh, taiwan even though it's a, a being a non nato ally um and and it's quite serious about this relationship so there are going to be ramifications and you know china obviously has bigger problems at hand right now it's got a you know a property crisis to deal with the economy is slowing it's still sticking to its zero covid policy so what we believe is china is going to in order for china to get its act together and deal with the us it's going to do one of two things it's going to it's going to strengthen ties with russia and at the same time it's going to induce more pol- fiscal policy to stimulate the economy and then um you know and then and then face the us and um and 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 do what it can to bring taiwan back under its uh, control it's so interesting what you just said because you're outlining so many causes and effects so we've seen as you say the us strengthen relations with taiwan and you're highlighting the 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 amount of chips that come out of taiwan which i hadn't no idea about so that's really interesting thank you but then of course that means that then you have um china and russia forging you know their own relations and that's an effect and I have to say personally I'm not a big Donald Trump fan so it's fascinating to hear that there was some wisdom in and some insight there but um on foreign relations but when you have a situation like Germany then um you know now realizing that the decision was catastrophic um could it could it have other ramifications for example positive ones and maybe not I'm just suggesting or or thinking out loud but for example the energy transition is this going to spearhead a faster energy transition for germany yeah i mean that is what we've been that you know that is our premise for why the commodity market should do well and that's what the commodity market was being driven by in uh, the whole of 2021 it was about the projection that inflation was transitory the energy transition was in full swing cop 26 was being taken seriously across the globe um but then the war happened and the energy crisis happened and you're right the the energy crisis should accelerate uh europe's need to transition into um newer forms of energy uh you know uh, renewable forms of energy but the important thing is renewable forms of energy need to be stored in order to be harnessed at times of uh you know at times when you do not have that source of energy um uh, available so that technology is definitely needed and the resources are needed in order to do to do that 
It's just that right now, the way things have transpired is Europe's, Europe's dealing with is well, it's just avoided a contraction. Really, we've had two two consecutive quarters of positive GDP print, but the the outlook going forward is we're headed in for a recession, um, and that's largely due to the fact that we you know investors are dealing with very high energy prices. Um, the EU is now talking about rationing fifteen uh, percent of uh, of a rationing across industry, so that's going to hold back production in a big way for Europe. So you've got production being curtailed, you've got um, demand being curtailed because consumers are dealing with higher, um, not only food costs, but rising energy bills. And I think that's going to that's gonna be a big challenge. So I think there's going to be this transition phase before we see a, a big acceleration towards the energy transition. But the only way forward for Europe to wean itself off Russian energy is via the energy transition. But in order for that to happen, there's going to be a massive um, a need for uh, an acceleration of production of metals because the energy transition is very metal intensive. Um, you know, be it in the grid infrastructure, be it in the production of electric vehicles itself that that depend on uh, the grid, be it on just the transmission of power, uh, even on uh, storing of renewable sources of energy. It's all very metal intensive, um, and and it's very resource intensive. So I think we're right now going through this transition period where we're still going to rely on fossil fuels as they're the cheaper alternative for now, the cheaper and quicker alternative to fix this gap that we have uh, in the market. And then the longer term solution is the energy transition. And that will be interesting because that will bring out kind of all kinds of other political ramifications as well. Yes, exactly. So Anika, I mean, one thing that we've, you've talked about is diversification and portfolio construction. So can you talk about um, some of the implications of political risk on traditional portfolios? Absolutely, uh, Maha. That's a great question. Uh, you know, in, in 2022, we've witnessed, um, I, unfortunately, I have to say the death of the 60-40 portfolio, the famous well-known portfolio where investors have 60% invested in shares and 40% invested in bonds. Um, you know, it's always widely viewed as a very simple and effective way of gaining uh, diversification and, you know, smoothing out the peaks and troughs in the market. However, 2022 was one of these years where, you know, the strategy just had the worst returns ever on record. Um, we saw both shares and bonds getting impacted. Obviously, the, the Federal Reserve um, and, and central banks globally uh, became a lot more hawkish in their stance on monetary policy. And as a consequence, bonds suffered very sharply. Um, at the same time, equities suffered very badly because, uh, you know, we saw uh, higher inflation and the impact of rising uh, yields uh, dampen sentiment on um, equities. We also saw a big outflow of uh, performance in growth stocks versus value stocks. And growth uh, stocks had been very overpriced, uh, you know, going into the COVID pandemic. So, so that really then brought up, brought out that question: Are there any alternative assets that should be, um, you know, brought into this famous sixty forty or uh, allocation? And obviously, the big question is alternative assets such as commodities, uh, property, or infrastructure. Do those assets actually warrant an allocation in the portfolio? Um, and uh, you know. 
clearly uh, alternative assets such as listed property securities do have uh, a much higher correlation a closer cor- correlation to equities when they're in listed form but property and infrastructure have had lesser correlation uh with equities so they do uh, obviously warrant an allocation and over and above that commodities uh you know have underperformed over the last decade um so investors have paid less attention to the commodity markets but over the last year we've seen some very strong performance come into the commodity market and i think that is now warranting an allocation in in an investor's portfolio um you know there've been many reasons that have helped uh the surge in commodity markets you know the first being a rebound in demand uh, coming out of the covid pandemic uh the russia ukraine war uh, exacerbated the supply situation uh and in addition you know we've seen uh the the uh, a number of commodities which will aid the energy transition also help drive a large chunk of the demand for commodities so i think overall that story is still quite intact and should help uh commodities going forward so rip the 6040 model but other opportunities there absolutely thank you so much and and thank Pleasure. you for for taking part in this discussion i i found it really interesting and and valuable i really appreciate it um, thanks so much maha and thank you to everyone for listening Remember to look out for the next episode of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. You can also subscribe so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK's SoundCloud channel or Apple Podcasts. Thank you.